It is Wednesday, February 21st, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we continue with our discussion of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, talking first with Shannon Watts. She is the founder of Moms Demand Action, and we talk with her about why this latest incidence of gun violence in America may be different. This is a tipping point in that more people will get off the sidelines, more people will use their voices and votes on this issue, and we will have momentum going into the midterms. And then here at the state level, we speak with the CEO of the Washington-based Alliance for Gun Responsibility. Renee Hopkins about lobbying for common sense gun legislation. I really think it's important for people to understand that this is not a partisan issue anymore. Democrats and Republicans both want common sense gun laws. We also have coverage of constituents visiting the Issaquah office of 8th District Congressman Dave Reichert to demand action on gun safety. And we will end by speaking again with Indivisible Houston's Daniel Cohen about his work to hold county officials responsible for failing to adequately prepare for Hurricane Harvey. That's all ahead, so stay with us. We are joined first this week by Shannon Watts. She is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, which is part of Every Town for Gun Safety. Shannon Watts, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. We're really happy to have you. So you're a mother of five, and you started Moms Demand Action after the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012. Just tell us very briefly about how the group started and how it grew. It it grew very rapidly, didn't it? It did. I wanted to have an online conversation. I had looked online for something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but couldn't find anything. So I thought, okay, well, I'll start a Facebook page. And I only had 75 friends at the time on Facebook. So I was not, you know, a a social media genius. But (laughs) very rapidly, what happened was strangers were connecting me with me and then connecting me to me other people. So I created this big network within just a few days of, of women who wanted to get involved, mainly women and moms, who were all over the country. I mean, states like Montana and Texas and the Carolinas, places you wouldn't necessarily think you would get inquiries from to to fight on this issue. And they just started organizing like type A women will. (laughs) And uh, we were sort of off and running. Well, you know, there there was a groundswell at that moment, um, and I, I think it was a unique moment because of the nature of the tragedy uh, in in Newtown. And, you know, as I'm sure you've been following in the last few days, the surviving students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School are speaking out. They are speaking out often, and they are they show no signs of stopping. Uh, there were protests in Fort Lauderdale over the weekend. Students are planning marches in Tallahassee uh, in front of the White House on Monday. Students participated in what is called a lie-in, which is similar to a die-in. Um, as, as you said, you've been working on this issue since 2012. The reaction to the Florida shootings feels different. In your mind, are we seeing a tipping point right now, maybe? I do. I I think that this feels different to me, too. I think in part because it's the first time almost every family, every community member has come out in unison to say the same thing. We need stronger gun laws. And, And we've seen that, you know, a parent or a family member or a community member in the past. But this is just kind of en masse. And it's amazing. And keeping this certainly at the forefront of the conversation. I am always hopeful 
that Congress will do the right thing, always. That said, this is a pretty intractable Congress. Even if we don't have the cathartic moment right now with this president and this Congress that we've been waiting for, which is to pass a sweeping federal gun reform package, we have other work to do. We can stop the horrific NRA priority bills that are winding their way through Congress. We can stop bad bills in state houses. We did that this week in Florida. So Florida legislature's reaction to the shooting was to try to get through a, a guns in schools bill. And we immediately were able to create such outrage that it was removed for consideration. But we can also pass good bills in states. So I am hopeful that Congress will do something. But even if they don't, this is a tipping point in that more people will get off the sidelines, more people will use their voices and votes on this issue, and we will have momentum going into the midterms. You talk about working at the state level, and that really is where uh, every town and Moms Demand Action have had really the bulk of their successes. And I want to talk about how that might translate into uh, federal action in just a moment. But just kind of keeping with the nature of what we are seeing right now, I want to just drill down a little bit further. Do we feel that this is different in large part because uh, the students who are being affected are speaking out and speaking out in such an effective way? Have we just had enough as a nation? Um, As somebody who has been tracking this for so long, I'm keenly interested in your take on this. I think it's all of it. I think the fact that we have had this comes on the heels of a, another school shooting in Kentucky. It comes on the heels of several mass shootings just since Donald Trump was elected, and including the worst mass shooting in our nation's history yeah. in Las Vegas. And I think also after Las Vegas, we thought, okay, surely something will happen, even if it's just bump stocks. And still nothing happened. And I, so I do think there is a pent-up anger that was just waiting to happen. I also think it's the fact that the community is – speaking out collectively and clearly about what they think should happen. And I I think students are incredibly compelling. I mean, these are the kids who are finally of age, who we have spent almost two decades telling them that lockdown drills are similar to acts of nature, right? They're they're unavoidable like fires or earthquakes. And mm-hmm. I think they're they're waking up as teens and saying well, you know, that is that simply isn't true. These are these are man-made acts of cowardice. You know, in the past, after every school shooting, there is a predictable cycle that happens uh, where Republicans will offer their thoughts and prayers. People will demand action. Uh, Democrats uh, and sometimes uh, Republicans will propose legislation and it goes nowhere. And I'm wondering, do you see an opportunity to break this cycle right now? I see an opportunity to break this cycle specifically with the midterm elections. And I I think the idea that things were going to happen overnight, particularly after Sandy Hook, was somewhat naive given that the NRA had a 30-year head start. They were fully entrenched. They were they had a great system of, of giving to candidates and grading them and holding them accountable. And that that isn't undone overnight. Yeah. That said, we have seen this issue become more and more important in the polls, particularly to women. And in fact, in Virginia, in the elections in November, uh, gun violence was the third most important voting issue over immigration and jobs. And those who said that was their important issue said they wanted stronger gun laws. And polling also showed that Northam's opposition, Gillespie, 
who had an A rating from the NRA was very hurt by that rating in, in voters' opinions. So all of this is starting to finally culminate in some momentum around elections, and we have to carry that into the midterms. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, why do you suppose the NRA has been so able to dominate the narrative around guns? And maybe more to the point in terms of the election, uh, they do have an ability to motivate their members, many of whom are single-issue voters, and that is what seems to scare members of Congress into line. But do you think we have an opportunity right now to change the NRA's narrative on guns? I do. I, I would. I have a little bit of a different viewpoint than you do. I don't know that they have this incredibly strong base who's going out there and electing these Second Amendment people. I think their their movement is a, in many ways a figment of their imagination. They have a three hundred and fifty million dollar budget that has made some lawmakers very afraid of them. But polling shows that 90% of Americans agree that we need stronger gun laws, like a background check on every gun sale. The issue is that Americans haven't necessarily been voting on this issue when they go to the polls because they haven't either been impacted by it or they don't think it's as big of an issue as the other things they, they think about when they go into the voting booth. But I think that it will be top of mind now. I yeah. think that the inaction of our lawmakers, not just in Congress, but in our state houses, to stop these tragedies from happening. In Florida, for example, there were many things the governor and the state legislature could have done. Um, I do think that people will go to the polls with this issue top of mind as long as we can keep it there. And the NRA has a $350 million budget. I mean, at the end of the day, that has been their most powerful lever. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that people are waking up to is the fact that uh, real change around this issue, at least at the federal level, uh, is going to come at the ballot box. Uh, and you've been alluding to that. And I know that every town has a five-point plan to get rid of lawmakers who are beholden to the NRA. Can you just briefly walk us through those five points? Absolutely. So we want people to act and, and get off the sidelines and join us. We want people to know where their lawmakers are uh, getting the money from. Are they A-rated? Are they from the NRA? And do they support bad policies like arming domestic abusers or letting people get guns without background checks? Um, we also want people to vote on this issue. When they go to the midterms, They want we want them to register and register their friends so that they're voting on this issue. And if they can't find a suitable candidate, then, you know, they may just have to run themselves. And we'll train people how to do that, too. Well, so you talk about uh, registering people to vote. And I'm wondering if, um, given that young people seem particularly energized around this issue right now, if you would advocate uh, voter registration drives at high schools and college campuses. Absolutely. So we, um, we've had such an influx of students asking us to organize them. And this has actually been going on for five years. Um, we finally decided right after this horrific tragedy that we would do something. We would give students a platform. So we created Students Demand Action, and we are just we are getting inundated um, from young people across the country who want to get involved. And that will be something that we will show them how to do, which is to to hold those kinds of registration drives. I mean, millions are going to be eligible, including my own 17-year-old son, to vote by the time the midterms roll around. And we have to make sure that they're registered. Yeah. You also talk about running for office. Um, you are a board member of Emerge America and Rise to Run. These are organizations that recruit and train women to run for office. 
And I'm wondering, do you feel that if we had more women, and in particular mothers, holding elected office in this country, that the legislative conversation around gun safety would change? I do. I mean, polling has shown that that this issue is more important to women than it is to men as a voting issue. And it also shows that when women are making legislation, they're more likely to make legislation that is stronger in terms of gun laws. So I think it will make a huge difference. I do think, you know, women are sort of innately um, pulled toward activism that protects their their families or their communities. And we've certainly seen that with Moms Demand Action. Obviously, we're, we're men as well. But um, I think that a big part of this solution is training our activists to move from just shaping policy to actually making it. And I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but uh, do you have any plans to run for office at any point? <laughs> you know, I feel, I've thought about it. I feel like I'm doing so much in this role and I'm the thing I'm so passionate about is helping other women run, particularly women of color. And so that's why I, I'm in, in the capacity I am on, on the boards. But I, this is a real passion of mine, especially with uh, the upcoming generation, getting them to feel like this, this is something they can do right out of college. They don't have to wait until they're 47, which is the average age women run. Well, I, I did not know that. Yeah. It, it would be very energizing, I think, to have uh, younger women running. It would probably bring a, a, a completely different dynamic to elected politics. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, my generation has done better than the generation before it in terms of feminism. But, you know, intersectionality is a whole new concept. And, and yeah. it's such an important and integral concept. And I think it just comes more innately and intuitively for this younger generation. And it will absolutely change the face of lawmaking. Right. And not to mention the facility this generation has with social media, too, having grown up with it. You see that in the way that the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas have used it to plan marches and protests. And and speaking of that, on March 24th, they have created what is called the March for Our Lives in D.C. And it's uh, also springing up. Uh, other marches are springing up across the country. And then on April 20th, which is the 19th anniversary of the Columbine school shootings, there is a national school walkout planned. Our Moms Demand Action and every town planning on taking part in these events in a support capacity? Are you planning additional events? We are. Um, along with uh, Gabby Gifford's group, Gifford's Courage, we are supporting the marches all over the country on the 24th of March. Um, and we will certainly turn out our, our volunteers and our activists to be a part of those all over the country. And that's the value of, of being a grassroots army. We're everywhere. So we're excited to see this be led by students and to follow their lead and hope that the the events on the 24th are, are huge, but also that they're activism driven, right? So we'll be there registering people to vote and we'll be there handing out um, ways to get involved in this movement so that it isn't just about that day, but it's all of the days between the March and the midterms. Yeah, and I think this is something that absolutely people want to keep the momentum going all the way through to November. Uh, so one last question, and I'll let you go. How can Indivisible, and you mentioned grassroots uh, groups, how can Indivisible and other grassroots groups best support and be an ally for the work that you're doing right now? 
Well, I would say Indivisible is a very strong ally. I, I was just looking at pictures from our march in Chicago over the weekend. And, you know, you guys were right there with your Indivisible signs next to us with our Moms Demand Action signs. I think we have very similar goals. Obviously, Indivisible has a, a bigger uh, menu of issues that they look at and work on other than just guns. But I think, you know, this is about strength in numbers, and certainly your organization and our organization together provide that. Um, if people want to get involved in our organization, they can text the word ACT to 64433. And I often meet uh, volunteers who are, are either leaders or just volunteers for both Indivisible and Moms to Be in Action, which I think is really exciting um, in this post-election era that people can get involved in all sorts of ways and work on all kinds of issues. Um, but, you know, for me as a mom of five, I am a single issue voter now. And until we fix this problem, um, I will be voting only for candidates, Democrats and Republicans alike, who, who do not take money from the NRA and will vote for gun safety. Well, Shannon Watts, I, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And I especially want to thank you for taking the time to uh, join us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. And next, we will take a look at what is being done here at the state level. Renee Hopkins is the CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, a Washington-based nonprofit that works to prevent gun violence. Renee Hopkins, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So I want to start by asking you what I just asked Shannon Watts of Moms Demand Action, and that is the reaction to this recent Florida school shooting feels different. Do you feel the gun debate beginning to shift right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's important to put it into context. Um, you know, I lost a brother in a school shooting uh, 23, almost 23 years ago now, oh. um, before school shootings were, um, were really a thing or something that was recognized in our country. And since then, you know, I've anticipated each mass shooting, each school shooting, uh, would be the tipping point. And um, until Wednesday, I have uh, been really disappointed that none of them have been. And I do feel that the Parkland um, shooting it has, has shifted something. It shifted something in our youth, which I think is just an amazingly beautiful thing to see. Um, it's unfortunate that they feel like they have to be the ones to step in and be the leaders because they should not have to be. Our elected officials should be and the adults should be. But that being said, their energy and their commitment to ensuring that this doesn't happen again and again and again, I think is the real difference. And um, I think it's a, it's a way that we should, we should ride and we should support them and let them lead and lead when they want to take a backseat. Um, because, you know, what they've all gone through, um, no one should have to go through. In oh, our country. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I am very sorry to hear about uh, your experience in all of this as well. Um, so your, your organization operates here at the state level, and it does seem that that is the place where meaningful gun legislation is happening. Uh, we've heard, of course, that Trump has signaled that he's maybe open to a bipartisan measure to improve federal background checks for gun purchases. And then we hear that Paul Ryan is basically saying that nothing like that is going to pass the House. But the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, your organization, worked to help pass universal background checks here in the state in 2014. So that was a real success. Talk about your organization's role in that. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one thing um, to remember as we're talking about this kind of major social change is um, change is slow until it's not, and then it's fast. And I think it's a misrepresentation um, to say that there has not been advancement in gun violence prevention since Sandy Hook. Um, at the state level, there absolutely has been. And I think Washington State is really proud to be one of the leaders in that state-based action. Um, and that started, uh, as you mentioned, with Initiative 594, which closed the background check loophole in Washington State. And that was an election. Um, it was the first time that background checks uh, were run on the ballot successfully. And uh, we were able to win with about 60% of the statewide vote, which is pretty remarkable. Wow. Washington, what, yeah, Washington State, like a, a lot of states, has a pretty clear urban-rural um, divide. But one of the things we learned through that process, through the Initiative um, 594, is that for the most part, um, across the board, men, women, grandmothers, grandfathers, mothers, fathers, gun owners, non-gun owners, Republicans, Democrats, um, even NRA members are supportive of common sense gun laws. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because a Quinnipiac poll that was just released uh, on the day that we are recording on the uh, the 20th shows support for universal background checks 97 to 2, which is virtually Unanimous. It's as close to unanimous as you ever see in a poll. And so, yeah, it is an issue that, that cuts all the way across, isn't it? It really does. And I think, you know, our experience in Washington State, which I, I can talk to as we um, continue through the interview, but our experience in Washington State is that that holds true across a number of different policies. It's not just about background checks. Um, I think our elected officials are frankly, um, you know, in the dark ages. Um, as opposed to their constituents as far as responsible gun laws. And um, the, the public, the voting public, uh, is is crying out for their elected leaders to show leadership and um, actually enact a number of common-sense gun laws. And to that point, the measure that was passed here in 2014 was a ballot initiative, and so it was it, it was not done through the state legislature. Rather, it was something that was done by the people. Correct. It was attempted through the state legislature, mm. but it ultimately it ultimately ended up on the ballot, um, as did a subsequent uh, policy in 2016. So another of your significant successes is helping to secure passage of what is uh, it's it's so-called red flag law. It's uh, better known as an extreme risk protection order. Walk us through what that does. Yeah, an extreme risk protection order. It's a really important policy, and it's a really important policy in a number of different situations. But basically, it allows law enforcement and family members, in our case, um, the ability to petition a court to, with, with due process outlined, to temporarily um, remove access to firearms for people in crisis. And this is really important in situations like we just saw in Florida. Clearly, this this young man um, it had all of the warning signs that he was in crisis, and there was not a tool for his loved ones or law enforcement or officials um, to legally uh, remove his ability to own or, or possess firearms. And he bought his firearms legally there, uh, they, they now know. Legally. Yeah, yeah and, and that's not an uncommon situation. I mean, in fact, in Washington State, the 
the day before, it was reported the same day as Parkland, we had uh, another young man, 19 years old, who legally purchased um, an assault an assault rifle. Um, and his grandmother ended up interceding because she had read that he was planning, had elaborate plans for a school shooting. Yeah, this was in Everett, I believe. This was in Everett, Washington, correct. And in two years ago, in, in 2016, an, another young man who, again, between that age of 18 and 21, uh, legally purchased a semi-automatic rifle and um, shot up a party, killing a number of young people in Mucklefield, Washington. You know, you know, this law is troubling to gun rights people, I think, because they feel that it's a form of government overreach. But I think it's it's important to stress this is a very high bar to trigger to, to have uh, an extreme risk protection order issued by a judge, isn't it? It's a high bar to trigger, and there are also um, processes identified to, um, you know, it's, it's temporary, so it's for a, a period of a year. Um, at the end of that time, if no one refiles for an, an additional period of an extremist protection order, firearm rights are restored. There's also a mechanism within the law that an individual can petition the court to have their firearm rights um, renewed even sooner. Um, so it's a, it is a high bar, and I also think it's a really important law when we're talking about suicide um, by firearm. Um, in our state, the vast majority of firearm deaths um, is from suicide, and we have a lot of great research now that shows that you know the more lethal means available at the time someone decides to try to commit suicide, the less likelihood they have of surviving. And the really important thing, which, you know, that makes sense, but the really important thing is that when people survive a suicide attempt, only 10% of them ever go on to die by suicide. So the myth that if someone wants to, wants to commit suicide, they'll find a way simply does not hold true based on research. So really making sure that, you know, people in times of crisis do not have access to firearms will save lives. I do want to bring up a little bit of language that I used when I introduced this. I referred to it, and this is as it is uh, somewhat commonly known as a red flag law, but there's a move away from using that language because it's stigmatizing, isn't there? Yeah, it can be stigmatizing um, in mental health communities. And I think the important distinction that our organization has really tried to make um, is People living with mental illness are actually much more likely to be victims of, of violence, of all kinds of violence, including gun violence, than they are perpetrators. And so we, we really want to be careful that we're not stigmatizing people with mental illness as somehow being inherently more dangerous because they simply are not. So another victory that your organization was part of was passage of the Law Enforcement and Victim Safety Law. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that does. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we um, learned during implementation of both um, 594 and another really important law, which is the Domestic Violence Protection Order Law, which um, allows for victims of domestic violence to file a petition with the court to remove um, firearms, um, the ability to purchase or possess from their offenders. And one of the things that we realized is once a person is on the prohibited purchaser list, when they try to, and they do try to, we know this, I think that's another myth, that people who are on the prohibited purchaser list would never try to legally buy a gun. They would just try to get it illegally, and that is not the case. Um, we have data to back that up now. 
but basically one of the one of the issues that we realized is that you know i'm someone who is prohibited i go and try to purchase a firearm i'm denied but i'm not legally purchasing it at that moment but that information was going nowhere so local law enforcement was not um informed that someone who's who is not able to legally possess firearms is trying to purchase one nor were victims of domestic violence and so this is a, a really um big loophole that we recognized in the law and we had two great champions in the legislature, um, a Republican and a Democrat, who um, Republicans is actually a sheriff, and um, Democrat is a lawyer, and they decided to take up this issue and um, worked with our uh, policy specialist and drafted a really, really significant and great piece of legislation. And so now in Washington State, as of this last summer, um, if someone tries to legally purchase a firearm, Local law enforcement is notified, as are um, any victims who signed up to be notified, uh, which is a really, really important piece of legislation. And I can't applaud our state legislature more for passing that last year. Now, you mentioned domestic violence. Uh, There is a measure that is connected to that as well that passed in 2014 with your help, and that was the Domestic Violence Protection Order, correct? Correct. And and that's a law that is, um, I think, is just... Similar to ERPO, a lot of other states now are looking at um, adopting, whether it be through a legislative process or at the ballot. Um, We know that the intersection of gun violence and domestic violence is critical. Um, Women who are in domestic violence um, relationships where a firearm is present are 500 times more likely, or five times, 500% more likely um, to die than those where a firearm is not present. And when you think about that, that's pretty staggering. Um, and it's, it's not just the women, it's, it's often children in the family that are impacted. Um, so, you know, our organization is really focused on keeping guns out of the most dangerous hands, and whether that's a domestic abuser, someone who's homicidal, or someone who's in crisis and might be suicidal. Um, so the domestic violence protection order law is is very, very important. So you have got a few items on your legislative agenda for 2018 in Olympia. Um, we have learned that a bump stock ban passed the Senate, and it looks like it's going to pass the House. But a measure to improve background checks for assault weapons looks like that has stalled. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about this measure. What specifically would it do? Yeah, well, the version that's currently stalled in the um, in the Senate um, is basically it's really simple. It's increasing the age at which a person can legally buy um, an assault style rifle from 18 to 21. Um, we know that you know brain development is is really still happening in a big way during that time period. And so access to the most dangerous weapons by, you know, individuals in crisis whose brains are not fully formed uh, is a really, really dangerous proposition. And, and again, you know, Florida plays this out, um, as have other, other instances that I've mentioned earlier today. Um, the other thing that this law, the other piece of this law in its current, uh, in its, in its current form is that individuals would also have to have a state-level background check. So it's basically raising the um, level in the state of Washington right now in order to have a concealed um, concealed pistol license. You have to be 21 years of age and have a, have a state background 
check as well as a federal background check. So it's just bringing the, you know, these, these most dangerous sort of firearms in line with um, the law around concealed pistol licenses in our state. You know, this seems very common sense to my ears. Uh, so what is the roadblock that is happening here in Olympia? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. The irony is not lost on me or our organization that this bill stalled in the in the Senate. And, and to be very fair, this bill's also stalled in the House. So this is um, this is the sort of responsibility around this bill lies on both House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans. Um, this bill stalled on the day of the Parkland shooting, and you know I think. From, from our organization's perspective, clearly from our, uh, our base, our grassroots base um, across the state of Washington, there is such hunger for this kind of common sense policy to move and um, for our leaders in Washington state to do just that. Um, the, the Senate this year has done a really good job of leading and has passed three gun responsibility bills off their floor. Um, including the machine gun loophole, which would which would be on bump stocks in Washington State, and that's currently in the House. But they're not done yet, and they really need to step into um, into a role of showing additional leadership and moving this really important piece of legislation forward. And I think it's it's the bare minimum that that our our base is just calling for. Well, you know, this came up in 2017 and failed to pass as well. And I'm wondering if you have a sense, and you mentioned that this bill stalled on the day of the Parkland shootings. And this was before I think it was really understood just, as we've discussed earlier, uh, how fundamentally different the response to that shooting would turn out to be. Do you have a sense that that may shift the dynamics in, in Olympia right now uh, regarding this bill? Yeah, I would say that I have an expectation that it will and that Washington voters have an expectation that it will. Um, and I have a sense that uh, many of our leaders are doing everything that they can to move this bill forward. Um, but they need to continue hearing from people from throughout our state who are supportive of this legislation and, you know, frankly, I think across the country, Washington State is no exception. Our elected leaders are just behind where their constituents are in terms of, of common sense gun laws. And this law clearly fits that as an example. But I think we're being led by uh, by high schoolers right now. Uh, that's the adults. The the the, are. Uh, the politicians <laughs> are uh, are falling behind their their constituents, and the constituents as adults are ultimately falling behind high schoolers. So maybe it's time for some younger people to lead the way on this one. You know, that's really important, and I agree with that. And I think one thing for our elected officials to realize is is that those high schoolers, many of them are going to be voting in eighteen, and if they're not voting in eighteen, they're going to be voting at nineteen and 20. Yeah. And it's time for our elected leaders to catch up. There is speculation, and I've, I've heard it often, that this generation that is coming up right now is going to, because they're the ones that have lived with the reality of duck and cover drills, are going to be the ones to actually put some meaningful gun legislation in place. Yeah, you know, I think that that's probably really true. I um I think that doesn't let the adults off the hook. We still need to keep pushing and supporting no. them and pushing. But, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and to her, 
all of this is just craziness that she doesn't understand why this is such a big issue um, in our country. And I kind of understand where she's coming from. Absolutely. And, you know, since you mentioned that, um, I see a lot of parents on social media talking about how they've become afraid to send their children to school. And that's this is something I just don't think any of us would have predicted would be a reality of life in 2018. So in your mind, what else do we need to do in Washington to ensure that our kids are safe from gun violence in their schools? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in, in addition to the policies that we've already talked about, um, which I think definitely need to move forward, um, one of the other big issues with um, with school shootings in particular um, is you know, just access to firearms by young people. And it's really important that it, that adults are held held liable, held criminally or um, strictly liable for uh, any time a firearm would get into the hands of a child um, or or young person, uh, you know, child up to 18, and that harm comes as a result. And we have a policy that has um, morphed uh, for the last 20 years. Actually, we have a great legislative champion who's been working on a child access prevention law or dangerous access prevention, as we call it at this point. And it's, it's, it's a law that, again, is really common sense. It does not prescribe how anyone um, has to store firearms. It just says that if you don't store them safely and something happens as a result, that you're held liable. And that is so common sense. And again, I think balance is a, a real American principle of we all have rights, but we also all have responsibilities and responsibilities that come with those rights. And this is a, a law that could really make a difference in access. And and that's not just important in school shootings. It's also important um, in suicide prevention. Um, another policy that we have that is right now actually continuing to move, um, it's in the House, is a voluntary waiver law, which would allow adults to um, know that they have a history of being in crisis or having suicidal ideation to voluntarily waive their firearm rights so that if they are in a time of crisis and in a moment uh, are poised to make a decision that they will regret, won't have the legal ability to do so. Um, it, it's the first of its kind in the country. We do expect it to pass this year, and well, we really look forward to seeing the impact that it has on um, suicide in our, in our state. Well, you know, there is a list of your uh, agenda items, the pieces of legislation that you would like to see passed in 2018. And I think we can uh, encourage people, listeners, to call their state uh, representatives and senators, uh, go to the website, take a look at some of these initiatives that are coming through uh, the Assembly and through the Senate, and to call uh, when appropriate. Yes, call, email, um tweet, <laughs> do all of it. I think that, you know, I don't think I had a good understanding until I really got into this work of just how important constituent contacts are with our elected officials. Um, they do need to hear from you, and your voice does matter. Um, your voice matters. Your vote matters. Um, please do take the time to, our policy agenda can be found on our website. Uh, ways to financially support our work can also be found on our website. Um, and information about what we do in our foundation as well. We do a lot of work focusing on ensuring that laws that are passed are implemented for their intent 
which I think is a real hole in um, in a lot of policy work that once they're passed, uh, there's an assumption that they just implement themselves, and that is not true. Um, and we also do a lot of um, public education and and research. So I would encourage anyone who wants to know more about what's happening in Washington State or wants to learn more about what's happening in Washington State and the country um, to please do visit our website. I will make sure that that information is available on the SoundCloud page and also on indivisiblepodcast.org. Just one last thing. You work to make what you do nonpartisan. And I think the fact that your organization's name references gun responsibility and not gun control or even gun safety speaks to that. And I'm wondering, do you feel that we need to change the discussion or maybe even the language around the gun debate in this country in order to better produce results? Yeah, I think I think regardless of the language we use, I mean, yes, I think that using language that represents what we're actually trying to do is very important. Um, but beyond that, I really think it's important for people to understand that that this is not a partisan issue anymore. For the voting public, this is not a partisan issue. Democrats and Republicans both want common-sense gun laws, and they want a range of common-sense gun laws, not just enhanced background checks. Um, And so it's time for our elected uh, leaders to see that that has changed in our country. This is not a partisan issue for our voters, and it should not be for our politicians. And I think that's where you get to um, really where the gun lobby comes in and their money stops our elected officials from actually representing uh, the will of their constituents. And that's something that we work really hard at the Alliance to stop. You also you mentioned that you take uh, donations. You are a five hundred one C four and C three. Uh, but I understand that you are also looking for volunteers, specifically if people want to get involved in your organization. What can they do? Yeah, we have a lot of opportunities for volunteers. Um, we do phone banks. Uh, we encourage people to join us in Olympia. We work to have a constant presence in Olympia during session. In fact, today there are about 300 people um, with one of our partner organizations, the Safe Action Network, in Olympia wearing orange and calling for gun responsibility. And tomorrow we'll be there with another partner organization doing the same thing. So we uh, we really encourage people to, you know, do the heavy lift of coming to Olympia with us. And if that doesn't work for you, write your legislators, call your legislators, email your legislators. Um, And you can learn more about volunteer opportunities also on our website. Well, as I say, I will make sure that all of that is available for listeners. But uh, Renee Hopkins, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for covering this issue. Really appreciate it. And so speaking of contacting your elected officials, on Wednesday, about 30 constituents from Washington's 8th District went to pay a visit to the Issaquah office of Congressman Dave Reichert. Indivisible's Washington's 8th District leader, Chris Petzl, describes what happened there. We didn't have an appointment because we knew he really wouldn't see us anyway. Um, And we just wanted to tell him that we've had enough of Congress's inaction on uh, gun safety 
And this was about the dreamers too, but I got to be honest, the gun safety thing is just more imminent and feels more life and death for more people, especially parents who have kids. Um, And quite a few people actually brought their kids, little kids with signs. It was rather heartbreaking um, to see them there with their signs. Uh, So we went to the door and luckily uh, the congressman's uh, staff people answered the door, uh, would not let us in. Um, But we offered to like stand in the hallway and wait for our congressman to just come out and talk to us for two minutes over and over they refused um, and they said that he was on the phone etc as if we don't matter we got a couple of uh, folks from the building wanting us to leave um, and it's as if you know we don't have access to our congressman which we officially don't Uh, no matter how many times we call and ask for answers on these things we don't get anything Um, so you know uh, we reminded them that the times are changing um, and that these young folks out of Florida are speaking out and saying the things that we've been saying and uh, hopefully hopefully this is a tipping point Um, but it was really great to see everyone there there was probably 30 or 40 of us would you say Um, and um, we just all have had enough and we were here to tell our congressman that so uh, hopefully he hears us in one way or another oh and actually we know he was in the building because we saw him go in and he still refused to meet with us so thanks congressman And here's some of the voices of the people who showed up to demand action from the congressman. My name is Valerie Berglund. I came down because I find it's too much. It's having our children grow up is hard enough. You know, becoming teenagers is hard enough. To have to worry about your safety in an environment where you need to get educated and you need to plan your successful route into adulthood and you worry that you might not even make it into adulthood is concerning. So, and who did you bring with you today? I brought my two sons. My older son is four years old and he's in preschool and my seven-month-old. I'm fighting for that. My name is Rita Calcano. I'm a preschool through kindergarten teacher. And I'm here because I am very concerned over the rhetoric about giving teachers um, training to shoot down students that come in with weapons. That is a lot of trauma to take on. And I would be in a position to give up my own life to defend my students over any training. I wouldn't touch a a gun because none of us are in the profession to hurt any one child. We're here to give them hope and save them and and inspire them to have a greater future, not, not to have them be in terror over needing to carry weapons in school. And finally this week, last year in the wake of the devastation of Hurricane Harvey in Houston, we talked with Indivisible Houston's Daniel Cohen about the view from the ground there and about how Indivisible was taking part in the cleanup efforts. It has been about six months since the storm, but many problems still persist there. And an article just put out by ProPublica and the Texas Tribune details how Harris County officials failed to adequately prepare for an event like Harvey. So Daniel Cohn is back with us uh, again to talk about what is going on there and how he's been working to address it. Daniel Cohn, thank you so much for being with us again, man. 
Absolutely. Thanks for uh, featuring us on the podcast and for covering this topic. It's obviously really important to us down here. Well, we're glad that you reached out. So first, give us an idea of what things are like there now. I I think the rest of the country assumes that things are back to normal in Houston. And and from what I've heard from you, they mostly are. But there are people who are still struggling to get back on their feet in the wake of Harvey. So tell us about that. Well, and that's a great question. And that's a good way of putting it, that if you were to visit Houston, Texas, you would see uh, some business as usual where people are driving on highways that were shut down during the storm. You know, buildings are uh, are basically functioning and people are going to work in a lot of parts of the city, particularly the inner loop where damage was not quite as bad in many uh, locations. Um, and there, there, there wasn't quite as much damage from the storm overall. And there was better drainage, as there often is in areas that has uh, that have more resources to begin with. Mm. But there are lots of people who are struggling. Um, I actually received word of a woman with a five-year-old child on the west side of Houston who is still looking for uh, uh, help in terms of food, um, building supplies, things like that. Uh, and they're still struggling. You know, she's still struggling to get things together. There are neighborhoods like Lakewood that are still struggling. Um, There is a pretty well-known story at this point about a um, Cambodian community that has had tremendous difficulties. Um, In fact, there was a a somewhat of a controversial story because a Confederate uh, group went down there and actually kept FEMA um, from providing resources in some cases. Uh, That story hit ABC 13. So, The point is that um, between the uh, infrastructure challenges of the storm and the political dynamics behind it, uh, there definitely is still plenty of work left to do down here in Houston. Well, let's talk about the political dynamics in play here, because last week you personally went to address the Harris County Commissioner's Court about the county's multiple failures around the hurricane. Uh, The ProPublica article shows that the commissioners approved a plan back in January of last year. This is, of course, before the storm hit that assumed that it would take a relief organization like the Red Cross upwards of seven days to reach people in a disaster. And so the county was supposed to train their personnel to act as first responders in that interregnum period. But that is apparently not what happened. And you went to talk with the uh, the county commissioner's court about it. So talk about what happened in terms of the county's response when Harvey did hit. Well, when Harvey hit, it was mostly chaos. The public piece does a great job of detailing the fact that, uh, that Harris County uh, employees were unprepared for it and didn't even know what to do and were unaware of the plan that the commissioners had passed. They they were the ones who were supposed to be acting. uh, When in reality, what wound up happening when the storm hit was uh, grassroots organizations started preparing, pushing relief, and uh, getting resources in place so that people could get back on their feet faster. It really was the people uh, that, that picked up the slack more than anyone else. Yeah, you talk about how volunteer groups like uh, Indivisible and also Black Lives Matter, the Democratic Socialists of America, were really taking up the slack in, in those days uh, after the storm. So when you talked to the county uh, commissioner's court directly and you, you read a statement there on the record, uh, what was their response? Everything you see in the video that we posted is salient. So the only response that we got was, thank you for your service, Mr. Cohen. 
Is the county doing anything at this point to help some of the people that you talked about earlier who are still struggling after the storm, or is that still just largely falling to volunteers? I think that the county has put on um, a cosmetic look, but I don't think that they're really acting in this case. They uh, will hear people out at commissioner's court and direct them toward uh, aides or staffers or bureaucrats uh, and say, this is who you need to talk to, which is, is, is something that they would need to do in addition to the other work. But the problem is that they're not doing the other work necessary to really solve it. They are running around trotting out a plan for hurricane prevention, but considering that the county commissioner's court hasn't had much turnover in the last 10 years, uh, I think that the, the real question is, why do we not have these steps implemented in the first place? Well, and you've also sort of hinted at uh, a larger issue, which is that given that this is an election season, uh, a lot of the hurricane prevention plans that are being talked about are basically being used as, uh, for want of a better term, political footballs, right? Well, the people are in political football, unfortunately. The plans themselves are being used as tools uh, of symbolism and propaganda to propel people into office. A lot of these lawmakers have been there for 10, 15, 20 years and failed to prepare us over that time. Hurricane Harvey is hardly our first storm. We've had five major floods over the last 10 years. We've had to redefine what we mean when we say a 10-year flood, a 100-year flood, a 500-year flood, because it just keeps raining and flooding our neighborhoods. There are some of these homes that have flooded two and three times. We never fixed our real estate uh, uh, law in the state of Texas. So people who lived in spillover zones, the, the agents didn't have to inform them when they were buying their houses that they lived in those spillover zones. The only people who had to be informed were people who were buying homes in floodways. And the only people who were buying homes in floodways were buying them because they were the only homes that they could afford in the first place. Mm. This has been a massive failure of leadership. And the fact that these leaders uh, have, are, are running around and running, not only not having to explain themselves in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, but are running on the issue of Hurricane Harvey with them as the great leader that brought resources to the neighborhoods is just completely outside of reality. I mean, it's, it's, it's not what happened. They're not telling the truth. John Culberson, who's in one of the most flippable districts this cycle and has been rated in one of the most flippable districts this cycle, has been in Congress for 20 years. He's failed in every single cycle to do anything significant to prepare us for storms. And this is the congressman who represents Greater Houston. He does. He represents Greater Houston and he represents uh, uh, portions of Katy uh, that, that were hit hard by the storm as well. And for the last 20 years, federal funding has been the enemy to him. He's failed to fund the Army Corps of Engineers uh, projects that would have put reservoirs in place. And now for the last you know, six and a half to eight months, uh, he can say nothing uh, but Hurricane Harvey. I mean, it's every other word that's coming out of his mouth. And it's because he failed to prepare before. And he knows that if he doesn't get out in front of the story and if he doesn't continue to pound that story, then he can't get reelected to Congress. So to use a, a hurricane to get elected to Congress after failing to prepare people for a hurricane is offensive. It's objectionable. It's immoral. And we're, we're tired of hearing it from our elected.
Well, it sounds like an enormously challenging situation, and uh, but it does sound like you are not only doing great work in a volunteer capacity, but you are also working to hold your elected officials to account. So, uh, Daniel, thanks for the update, and thanks for joining us on the show, man. I mean, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We're, we'll keep fighting down here, and we'll be in touch. And that'll do it for this week's show. I mentioned a number of links in our interviews today, and you can find all of that on the SoundCloud page as well as at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you have not already, do subscribe there and get the show delivered to your inbox. Doing that makes the MailChimp happy, I'm told. Uh, Also, please do keep the emails and the tweets coming. The email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Shannon Watts, Renee Hopkins, and Daniel Cohen. My special thanks goes out to Megan Adamoli and Taylor Maxwell. And as always, my thanks... And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.